Father, I thank you um, that each person here has come this morning and that we want to uh, open up our hearts to you and to what you want to say to us uh, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, whom we trust and we believe is here with us this morning. And in fact, who we believe is inside of us, those who follow Jesus, and we thank you for that gift. And so may your spirit be at work in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, that you would be pruning what needs to be pruned, that you would be correcting what needs to be corrected, that you would be encouraging those areas of our hearts that maybe feel discouraged, and that you would call us deeper and deeper into our walk with Jesus, your Son. So we thank you for these moments that we have, and I just pray your blessing over the Word. I pray that you would use the things that I've prayed about and written down and prepared this week, that it would be a blessing for your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to, as I said, we want to continue on in our David series, looking at uh, some of the stories from David's life. I want to begin this morning by uh, just playing a little game that most of you will be familiar with from your childhood. It's called Simon Says. Okay, hands in the air. How many of you are familiar with the rules of this game, Simon Says? Yeah, okay. Uh, You're out, because I didn't say Simon Says, raise your hands, so. Some of you got it already, though, eh? Yeah, you're paying attention. All right, uh, everybody stand up. Simon says stand up. We're going to play this game together. Okay, Simon says put one hand in the air. Okay, Simon says wiggle your fingers. Simon says put the other hand up in the air. Simon says wiggle those fingers. Stop wiggling. Anybody stop wiggling? you got to sit down if you stop wiggling. Simon says stand on one leg. Okay, Simon says clap your hands once. Clap your hands again. Oh, you got to sit down. Simon says you can put that other leg down now. Simon says lick your finger and put it in your neighbor's ear. All right. I can't believe some of you actually did that, but you can go ahead and have a seat. I got you again. <laughs> Simon says you can sit down now. Simon says, I'm sorry about that, those of you who got a finger in your ear. but Simon says, of course, is a game that tests our ability to, uh, to listen to instructions, to follow instructions. And it's one thing to do that in a game. It's another thing to do that in life. It's another thing to do that in our walk with Jesus. And of course learning to listen to God, learning to pay attention to God and his leading in our life and his call on our life, uh, that's another thing altogether. And it's the call of us as followers of Jesus, but the truth about me is that I I don't always do that well. And I'm sure the truth is the same for you as well. In fact, sometimes I fail at that more than I care to admit or care to talk about. But that's the truth about me. And this week I've been reading a lot about the David story, partly to refresh myself on some of the details but also partly because I'm fascinated by David's story. I love the David story. And one of the things that fascinates me about David and what the scriptures say about David, of course, is this phrase that you've no doubt heard throughout the series, is that scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. And I think to myself, because uh, I wrestle with this a little bit. And in fact, I wrestle with this a lot. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a man or a woman or a child after God's own heart? What does that really mean? And in David's circumstances, what did it actually mean that David was a man 
after God's own heart. Because David was far from perfect, far from it, as you know. He failed at the game of Simon Says over and over and over again. He did things, friends, where by today's standard, he would be in prison, probably for the rest of his life. If I were to be honest, sometimes the more I read about David and his life, the less I like him. Okay? Because there's lots about his life that is not commendable at all. I mean, honestly, how can someone with murderous rage issues, someone who is an adulterer, and that is putting it mildly, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, someone who is a murderer, someone whose parenting skills put his family in all sorts of trouble and shambles, how can someone like that be called a man after God's own heart? How do we reconcile those two things, that David and all of his failings, but this phrase that David was a man after God's own heart. And, and the answer, or at least the conclusion that I've arrived at, is that as long as we equate moral excellence with the phrase, a man after God's own heart, we will always wrestle with the David story. We will always wrestle with this idea that David was a man after God's own heart if we equate moral excellence with that phrase. And while I wrestle with this as I read David's story, I'm also encouraged. I'm encouraged because I too can struggle with anger. And I too can struggle with lust. And while the outworkings of those things in my life look different perhaps than what it looked like in David's life, my point is, is that I struggle with these things. And my point is that uh, it's encouraging for me because I, while I read the David story and I, while I see that he was far from moral excellence, I recognize in my own life that I don't always hit moral excellence. And I'm encouraged to know that I can also pursue to be a man after God's own heart. That I can still walk in relationship with God amidst my struggles, amidst my failings. I was talking with Pastor Jason about all of this this week in this wrestling, and I, and I had to admit to him, I said, you know, if someone wrote a, a story, a book about my life with a kind of honesty, with a kind of raw kind of writing that, that they did about David's life, I'm sure that the more you read about my life, the less you would like me to. But I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged to know that I still can be someone who pursues to be a man after God's own heart, and so can you. I, I was thinking this week about uh, a ministry that I'm involved in and several people in our congregation are involved in, and that is a ministry at our, our, our correctional center, at our prison. And um, if you've never been in there before, it's, it's, it's a great experience. And as we've gotten to know uh, a number of the inmates, um, perhaps my thinking about prisoners has changed, changed in a positive way. And it grieves me sometimes some of the ways that prisoners are talked about in, uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the papers and all of that kind of thing. Some of the reactions that people have, and I understand it, some of those people have done terrible, terrible things, but some of the ways that people feel about them is that they just want to write them off, is that this world would be better just rid of those people. But as I get to know some of those people in there, Yes, there are some people who are hardened who don't want to change, but friends, there are men and women in that place who are honestly asking the question, do I have a shot with God? I've messed up royally in my life, but do I even have a chance with God? Is there a chance for me to have a life with God? And the answer is yes. And there are men and women in there who are honestly pursuing and seeking God. And what encourages me about the David story in relation to them is that despite our moral failings, Despite the fact that we have fallen short again and again and again, we still can have a life with God. 
we still can pursue to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. It seems to me that David was called a man after God's own heart, not because of his moral excellence, but it was because he was someone who consistently sought after God. His heart was open to seeking after God in all situations of his life. He kept acknowledging God as king over and over and over again. He just kept coming to God. And one of the indicators, I believe chief indicators, that David kept coming to God, that this was true about David's life, was his consistent heart of worship. David was a worshiper through and through in all situations of his life. So this morning I want to look at, very briefly, a story about David and his heart for worship. But before we get there, I need to sort of catch you up on the David story because we're going to land at 2 Samuel chapter 6. But there's a lot that ha- there's a lot that has happened. So let me just sort of net it out for you and catch you up on the story. Uh, we started this series in 1 Samuel 16. And in 1 Samuel 16, young David was chosen from all of his brothers to be the next king of Israel. And he was anointed as king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. But the problem was, is that there was already a king. There was already someone who was sitting on the throne. And his name was Saul. And David would have to wait for years before he would realize the actual kingship in Israel. And as you've heard about over the last few weeks, David did so patiently. He continued to patiently trust in God, in God's plan, and in God's timing. He didn't rush things. He didn't rush God's calling and anointing over his life. He waited patiently, and he trusted in God. And at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan, they're both killed in battle. And as we read the story, if we didn't know the story, we would think naturally, okay, at this point, David is going to be anointed or he's going to realize the kingship over all of Israel. But that's not true. David would have to wait years after that. Because what happened was David was anointed king over the southern part of Israel, that is Judah. But one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, was anointed king over the northern part of Israel. And so there was a lot of tension there. <clears throat> but by 2 Samuel chapter 6, Ishbosheth dies. In fact, he's murdered. And two of the men that murdered him come to David thinking that they're going to be the bearers of good news. They were wrong about that. They lost their lives because David was not one to kill the Lord's anointed. And so at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 5, we reach the fact, uh, we reach the conclusion that David is anointed as king over all of Israel. And that's where we wind up, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this is a story about David's heart for worship. But it's also a story, a continuing story, about the saga of the Ark of the Covenant. And so I need to catch you up on that as well. I need to fill you in on that part of the story. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box. It was about four feet in length by two feet by two feet. And it was a box that was constructed of wood. It was gold-plated. The lid of the box was made of pure gold. And lots more that could be said about how it looked. But inside the Ark of the Covenant, it contained three items. The first was the stone tablets on which were uh, the commandments of God. The second was a jar of manna uh, taken from Israel's wandering years in the wilderness. And the third was Aaron's rod, his staff. And so these things, these precious things, were in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, uh, Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, These items were the continuing and reminding evidence that God worked among his people. He commanded them, the tablets. He provided for them, the manna. And he saved them, the rod. So the ark was this continuing reminder to God's people of his presence, of his provision, 
of his help in their lives. And it was holy. And it was to be treated as holy. But there was a problem. 30 years before David took the throne, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And so they were in battle with Israel, and they won, and so they took the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it back to their land. And they put it in their temple. But the problem was, is that wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, it was trouble for the Philistines. So they put it in their temple, and, you know, it was just chaos. It was trouble everywhere. And so the people in that area said, we don't want the Ark here. And so they ship it off to another city, and it goes to that city. Same thing happens, just trouble and heartache everywhere. And so they say, we don't want it. And so they ship it off to another city. It's like a a game of hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant. And it just goes from city to city to city. And wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, trouble and heartache went for the Philistines until finally they reached the conclusion, we don't want the Ark of the Covenant. This is a curse for us. This is not a good thing. So they do just an interesting thing. They put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart with two ox or two cows or whatever, and they put it on a road and they hope it gets to Israel. No one even goes with the ark. They just send the ark on its way. And finally, the ark does arrive in Israel. And it arrives in a vicinity, a place called Beth Shemesh. And when the people of Beth Shemesh, they initially see the ark, they rejoice because God's ark, the ark of the covenant, is back in Israel. But the problem was that there were 70 people who were much too curious about the ark of the covenant. And they take a peek inside the ark of the covenant, and they all die. And so very quickly, the people of Beth Shemesh realize we don't want the Ark of the Covenant here either. And so they send it off. They send it off to a, a place called Kiriath-Jerim. And in Kiriath-Jerim, they decide to put the Ark of the Covenant in the house of a man named Abinadab. And there the Ark remained for 20 years. So now we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 6. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. It says this, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, Because of his irreverent act, therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. It's fascinating to me. There's part of me that wrestles with this part of the story. I don't know if you wrestle with this. Immediately, my mind goes to the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who, you know, bore false testimony. They lied about the offering that they were giving, and all of a sudden, they're dead as well. And I think, God, why so harsh? I mean, I've done much worse in my life. And certainly people around Uzzah probably had done much worse in their lives as well. David had done much worse in his life, and yet Uzzah is the one, excuse me, who perishes. And I think part of me says, God, that's not fair. Why so harsh there? And I don't have the answers for that. I mean, I know what commentators say. They say that Uzzah just didn't treat God's, uh, God's... Uh, ark as holy he was reckless with it and text says that it was an irreverent act 
But there's also part of me that says it's natural, and I think most of us would have reached out and grabbed that ark too. But the fact is, is that I don't know the history and I don't know the circumstances around Uzzah. I don't know his life. And we trust that God knows and we trust that God knows what he was doing. But the fact of the matter is that the day of celebration turns into a day of great fear. And David has two responses. First of all, he too is angry that the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. But the second response is David is afraid. And I think all of us would be afraid as well. And so David's response is, um, I'm not so sure that we want the ark in Jerusalem, actually. And so the change of plans, and so they decide <clears throat> to take it to the house of Obed-Edom. And there the ark went. Now, I want you to just imagine for a moment. What do you think it would be like to have the ark of the covenant in your house? Okay? I just Can you imagine Obed-Edom, the knock on his door? Uh, Obed... We have something that we want you to store in your house. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Would you mind if we stored it here? If I was Obed, I would say, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think I would, because he would have known the history. He would have known how serious this was. I think if the Ark of the Covenant was in my house, there'd be three simple rules. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. You don't go near the Ark of the Covenant. You don't even think about the Ark of the Covenant. There'd be velvet ropes around the Ark of the Covenant. It would be put, put away in a room. Uh, it would be very scary. But the fact is, is that it was in Obed's, Obed-Edom's house for three months. And for those entire three months, he and his family were blessed. Their socks were blessed off. Okay? It was just an amazing blessing for them. And at the end of those three months, David comes to Obed-Edom and he says, we want to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. And so they do it right this time. And they transport the Ark of the Covenant right. And they bring it into Jerusalem. <clears throat> and on that day in Jerusalem... The worship and celebration continues for everyone, except for a woman named Micah, or Michal, sorry. And Michal was David's wife. And it says this in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 6. It says this, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Mike, Michal, the daughter of Saul, watched him from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And then Michal corners her husband David, and she has these words for him. She says this, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls and his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. And we think, why would she say this? And I think there is a measure of understanding that is needed for this woman. Because if you know the backstory to Michal, she was first uh, given to David to be his wife. It was an arranged marriage. It wasn't her choice. She loved David, but she was given to David. And she became his wife. But then, after a series of events, she was taken from David and she was given to be another husband, or another man's wife. And she lived with this man for 10 years. And then when we arrive at around this point of the story, David decides, I want her back as my wife. And so he goes and he takes her back as his wife. And the story says that her husband at the time just wept. He was just grief-stricken. Of course he was, as David took his wife from her as his own wife. And so she's in a place, I'm sure, where she is hurt. And the reality of the fact is that sometimes people who are hurt say some hurtful things. Sometimes hurt people hurt people. It doesn't excuse her actions or excuse her words, 
but I think a measure of understanding is appropriate for her. But this is David's response to her, verse 21. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he approached me, ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by those slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in high honor. Two things in David's response. He says, first of all, it was before the Lord that he was dancing. That was the heart of his dance. It was before the Lord. It was for the Lord. The second thing is, I will be even more humiliated in my own eyes. I will become humble before the Lord, even more humble than that. I've said to us before that as we come into this place and as we worship together and as we leave, sometimes there is a measure of evaluation that goes on about the worship of that Sunday. But oftentimes the kind of evaluating that happens is wrong. It has the wrong perspective. Oftentimes people will say, what did you think of the worship? Meaning, what did you think of the music? What did you think of the song choices? Or what did you think of the instruments? Or what did you think of how things were done? And I think the right question, I think that's the wrong question, the right question that we ought to be asking ourselves as we head out those doors after a worship service is not what did you think of the worship, what did you think of the music? It's what did God think of my worship? What did God think of what I brought him today? And specifically, what I did in my singing, in my attentiveness to the word, did I do it before the Lord or did I do it for other reasons? And secondly, am I willing to be humiliated? That is, am I willing to humble myself before the living God as in a way that I will properly reflect the gratitude and the humility and the repentance that I need to have before the living God? Is what I do on Sunday mornings done before the Lord? And am I willing to humble myself? Eugene Peterson, in his book about the life of David, he defines worship in this way. He says, Worship is the strategy by which we must interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God, not because he's confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him at all in other times and in other places. David was a man after God's own heart, I believe, because he seemed to be consistently preoccupied with God. He kept coming to God. He didn't do this perfectly, not by a long stretch. He didn't do this all the time, but he consistently, he was preoccupied with the presence and the favor and the mercy of the Lord. And not just when things were happy or going well in his life. He came to God all of the time, in all situations, in all circumstances in his life. And this is so much of what the book of Psalms is about. It's about David extending his heart to God in worship, drawing near to God in good times, in suffering, in confusion, in his sin, when he was running for his life, or when he was in the sanctuary of God. He sang, he cried out to God, he hollered, he wrote music, he carved out time with God, he just kept coming to God. God was his consistent direction in in his life. Even when he stumbled, he kept coming to God. That's what I believe made David a man after God's own heart. Friends, what we do here on Sunday mornings 
is to extend into our weeks. That is, that we are to attend to God's presence and His Word as we go into our homes throughout our weeks. But what we do together here on Sunday mornings, corporately, as the body of Christ, it matters. And I want to say to you this morning that you are welcome to come and to worship and to extend your hearts to God this morning, even if things in your life are going anything but well. You're welcome to come and worship and extend your hearts to God. God wants your heart. You're welcome to raise your hands and your voice in worship if you are suffering. You're welcome to worship God if your life is a mess. You're welcome to worship God if you've sinned yet again. Friends, the worst thing that you can do is stay away from God. The best thing that you can do is to move towards Him in humility, in repentance, and in gratitude. He wants you to draw near to Him. And that's what David did. You're welcome to dance before the Lord, if that's the expression of your heart to God. You're welcome to lie down on the floor. You're welcome to kneel. You're welcome to sit quietly. You're welcome even to come and play the drums. No, you're not welcome to come and play the drums. (laughs) Friends, God just wants you to come. He just wants you to come. To extend your heart to Him in humility. That's what David did again and again and again. And that's what He wants from us. Let's pray together.